0: All right, we are working our way through Acts chapter 2. The setting, of course, is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been already poured out now upon the 120 disciples in the upper room. That has spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem. There's a large crowd, a multitude, it's described at this point in the story, that has gathered to find out what is going on. Uh, Peter and the apostles stand up and interact with the crowd, Peter takes the lead and he uses that moment as God's chosen opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the crowd that's gathered. And he begins to proclaim the gospel in an interesting way, which is that he makes reference to an Old Testament prophet by the name of Joel. Joel is one of the oldest of the Old Testament prophets. I don't mean his physical age, I mean his prophecy was written Um, by most scholars account earlier than just about every other prophecy of the old testament prophets but what he had to prophesy in one key portion of the book of joel had everything to do with what was happening right then and right there that day on the day of pentecost in fact peter makes the connection and says as we'll read here in just a moment the things that are happening today the things that have drawn this crowd out of curiosity to find out more about, this is what Joel was prophesying about hundreds of years ago. Now, for our study today, we're just going to focus on two verses, but let's read the portion that really is, uh, is the, the section around our study, starting in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 21. And if you're following with me in the ESV, there's a little heading that the translators have added, Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here in verse 17, he begins to quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And he begins to apply it to the circumstances that are unfolding that day on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters, your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, as Peter applies the Joel prophecy to the events of that day, I've identified that he makes three key points of emphasis. Those three points of emphasis, the first one we studied in last week's study, the Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh That's what's happened there on Pentecost and that's what's going to continue to happen as new people come to know the Lord and are added to the Lord throughout all the duration of what we call church history to follow. And we've identified that Joel's reference to the spirit being poured out on all flesh doesn't mean that every single individual in the world will have this experience. That's certainly not the case, but when we establish that all flesh equals flesh, all-people groups, that the Lord is not excluding any group of people from the great blessing of experiencing true salvation and experiencing a true new covenant relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, the second point of emphasis is what's going to be the focus of our study today, and that is the Lord will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And then for our emphasis next week, Lord willing, we're going to just focus on the last verse of the section that I just read, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so a single small verse, but a super important one. And that's why we're going to devote an entire study to that. So for today's study, we're just going to be in two verses, verses 19 and And verse 20. So let me just reread those two verses. the Lord is speaking through Joel here. And it's important. And we'll go back to Joel in a few minutes. And we'll look at this prophecy in its original context. But I want you to just understand that the Lord is speaking, but he's speaking here to Israel. Verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, I want to identify what we're about to study as a particularly challenging study. I think we've done enough study in this general subject, this general topic as a church before, that it will be for many of you somewhat less challenging uh, than if this was the very first time we had addressed this together. But even those that have heard me teach on this general topic before, it's still a somewhat challenging topic and it's certainly a topic that's continuing to be debated among good-hearted Christians, people that truly know the Lord, people that love the Lord. They read this passage and draw radically different conclusions as to what joel is talking about and how peter is taking that prophecy from the old testament and then applying it to what's happening that day but clearly in every every bible prophecy teacher agrees with this peter is clearly applying it to the day that was happening then but he's also applying it to some future event beyond that exact day the question is, which future event is he applying it to? We're going to try to clarify that. And the reason it's so challenging, I think, if you were asking my opinion, you're not, but I'll give it anyway, and that is that um, the church in our generation, and I'm not just talking about this specific local church, the church in our generation as a whole is woefully unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Now, we have spent a lot of time as a church studying the Old Testament. We don't study the Old Testament exclusively, but we do study a lot in the Old Testament. And that's helped us, and I think we're somewhat more equipped to rightly read this portion, verses 19 and 20 of Acts 2, connect it in the right way to the Joel prophecy. But most of the church just doesn't spend any time really in any kind of in-depth study in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of unfamiliarity with Old Testament themes, and specifically Old Testament prophecy, and how the Lord uses what I'm going to call prophetic language. Now, when I say prophetic language, when we're reading the prophecies of the Old Testament, and this is true of the prophecies of the New Testament as well, it's not like the Lord suddenly went, as he's as he's speaking to Joel in Joel's known language, which was the Hebrew language. It's not like the Lord suddenly starts to say, okay, Joel, I'm going to have you prophesy now, and you're going to stop speaking Hebrew. You're going to start speaking a completely new language that you've never learned, like speaking in tongues or something of that nature. Joel, Joel's entire prophecy is in the language of the Hebrew people. They were familiar with their own language, of course. But the way that he uses the Hebrew language and the descriptions that are attached to prophetic events have their own group of meanings. And the people then were somewhat more familiar. We typically look at at people in, in the Bible and say, well, they didn't really fully understand things. In many cases, they didn't really fully understand, but they did understand this. They understood better than we typically do how the Lord uses language to communicate prophetic images and prophetic purposes. And so what I've learned is in understanding prophetic language properly, you need to allow scripture to interpret scripture. This is one of the most important principles of the right interpretation and application of God's word that you'll ever learn. And that is scripture is the best interpreter of difficult and challenging portions of scripture so i'm saying that acts chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 what is it talking about it's talking about wonders in the heavens above it's talking about signs on the earth beneath and then we have a short list of what those wonders and signs are here are the wonders and signs blood fire vapor of smoke sun turned to darkness and moon turned to blood. There's five specific wonders and signs that are mentioned. What's super important is that we don't read that list of five signs and wonders and then just decide for ourselves what we want that to mean. It's super important to not import into the text our own preferences of what those Descriptions mean and what they're meant to convey to our hearts. So, if they're not, if they don't mean what we would want them to mean, what do they mean? They mean how the Lord uses them in other portions of Scripture. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some other portions of Scripture that use those exact descriptions, and we're going to allow Scripture to establish for us a framework to understand how the Lord is speaking through Joel and then how the Lord is speaking through Peter and what it ultimately means for their lives then, but our lives today. Now, what we're going to look at first, and we'll get to how this applies to Peter's events that day and what future events Peter is referring to. But first, let's look in more detail at this concept of wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. The first detail, though, in verse 19 is this. This phrase that introduces the wonders and signs. And the phrase is, the Lord speaking to Joel says, and I will show. This is an important phrase because it emphasizes that this is the doing of the Lord. Meaning, He is not describing just random events that are going to happen in history or in the near future. These are events that the Lord is, in a sense, interrupting the normal flow of history, and He is causing certain special things to happen that will get everybody's attention, or at least everybody that's paying any attention, it will get their heart's attention and it will communicate certain concepts to them and it's meant to communicate those same concepts to our heart so when the lord says i will show we're just meant to to catch that he's in charge of these events that everything that's about to unfold on the day of pentecost and on whatever future day he's referencing this is the lord's doing this is the lord's work and he's the one in charge of history and he can interrupt history however he sees fit to interrupt history and that's exactly what's taking place. Now, the second thing I want to notice is uh, just, it's a flipped description, but it's one that's familiar to us. The, when I say flipped description in verse 19, there's a mention first of wonders. And then, the, and then the second line, there's a mention of signs. So wonders and signs, we typically uh, use the phrase signs and wonders, just flipping that order. There's nothing, I think, especially uh, significant about the, the order of wonders before signs here. Whether you call it wonders and signs or signs and wonders, I think you're good either way. But normally, if I were to say to you, and I want you to think in terms of our circumstance, in today's service, in today's church service, you are going to experience. Wonders and signs. What would you be anticipating happening? Miracles? What? Okay, something out of the ordinary, but let me ask it this way, just so you understand where I'm heading. Would you be anticipating something really good happening or something really bad happening? Normally when you think, and, and you don't see it as often in our culture, our church culture here in this country as much anymore, but... Um, I've had the opportunity, as you know, to visit Kenya several times for, for teaching and pastors' conferences there, and you know, just driving along the road, you see a lot of, you see a lot of churches, and and the churches have their advertisements out, and there are there are many churches in Kenya that literally advertise, advertise "Come to the service. This is a signs and wonders service." And I guarantee you, what they're thinking when they use the phrase "signs and wonders." and what the people are thinking when they see those signs is come to the church service and God is going to do amazing things but the the amazing things you want him to do in your life like we prayed for Caleb this morning and for his his back circumstance if the lord were to do a sign or a wonder with Caleb's back what would we be hoping that he would do that he would be miraculously healing Caleb so that he didn't have to go through a surgery there's nothing wrong with interpreting signs and wonders in that way, if, that's, you know, if you're one to circle in your notes, if the context determines that the Lord is talking about a good thing or doing good things for his people. Uh, Let's turn from Acts chapter two back to an Old Testament prophet, not Joel in this case, but the prophet Amos. I want to give you an example of how the Lord uses this phrase. And we're going to be in Amos chapter 5. And I want you to understand that what Amos is about to describe doesn't apply, does not apply to every single sign and wonder the Lord will ever do. when Jesus came into this world and ministered publicly for the three and a half years That his public ministry lasted, he did many miraculous, wonderful things, and they were called signs and wonders. But they were all good things in every single case. However, here in Amos, there is a context connected to signs and wonders that's different. Let's read from Amos 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord is a key phrase that's also in the Joel prophecy and it's quoted by Peter and it's applied to some future event that's connected in an important way to what's happening there on the day of Pentecost. The day of the Lord is coming, essentially is what Joel said. And here, Amos says, woe to you, he's speaking to Israel, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion. Can you imagine you're out in the wilderness and you see a lion and you're not in your car. It's not like one of those drive-through zoos. You're out there walking, hiking through the wilderness and you see a lion like Tim hiking the the Sierras and he sees a mountain lion and what would he do if he saw a mountain lion hopefully he'd turn around and walk the opposite direction as if a man fled from a lion while he's fleeing from a lion what happens to him and a bear met him so you're hemmed in now you've got a lion behind you because you're fleeing from the lion and you've got a bear in front of you which way do you go now I'd go right or left at that point. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't go forward and I wouldn't go back. Because you can't win either one of those fights. That's the point. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall. He's just relaxing in his house. And when he leans his hand against the wall, an unseen, the, it's not in the text, but that's the implication, a serpent bit him. You think you're safe in your own house, right? And there's a snake in your house. And, it's a, and, and and again, the implication is this isn't a harmless snake. This is a venomous snake. This is a dangerous snake. And a serpent bit him. Why is the Lord giving that imagery in verse 19? He's wanting Israel to understand they're longing for the day of the Lord, which they think for them is going to be a day of rescue from their present circumstances. But the Lord is telling them, no, listen. You're longing for something and you have no idea what you're really asking for because the day of the Lord is coming, but it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Verse 20 clarifies Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Now, what does he mean? He means that the day of the Lord in this context is a day of judgment it's not a day of blessing. It's a day of Israel experiencing the cursing of the Lord rather than the blessing of the Lord. You remember all the way back in the story of the Lord bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land just as they were entering the promised land, just after they had finally crossed the river Jordan and they're now technically actually really in the promised land. He took them to a special location and he under the leadership of Joshua split the entire nation into two groups and he had one group and this was a valley he had one group stand on one side of the valley up against the the slopes of one mountain and he had the other group of of Israel stand on the other side of the valley against the slopes of another mountain And he had them recite something out loud in unison, so loud that they could hear each other across the valley reciting what they were supposed to recite. And Do you remember what he had them recite? The blessings and the cursings connected to his law. And the point of that was this. If you obey my law, you will receive and experience in your lives, the blessings of the Lord if you disregard, disobey, and rebel against my law, you will experience the cursings that are being pronounced by this other group of people. And by the time of Amos, the sad story was that Israel had disobeyed, disregarded, and rebelled completely and perpetually against the laws of God. And now what was coming was the day of the Lord, which equals the day of reckoning, where the Lord is going to now hold his own people accountable. And Amos is warning them, you're, you're, you're waiting for, you're wanting, you're desiring the day of the Lord. It's not going to be what you think it is. Now, this is important for us to understand because Joel references all of the things that are pointing forward to the day of the Lord. Those things that are pointing forward to the day of the Lord are the, the wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth beneath. And those are specified. And I said there were five things. Let's look at the first two. The sun will be turned to darkness as a sign that the day of the Lord is coming or is arriving. And the moon will be turned to blood. Uh, turn with me to another portion of scripture. This is all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. The Lord had given, through Moses, to his people a, uh, a key to understand some of, not every detail, not all of it, but some of his prophetic language. Remember at the beginning I was talking about how the Lord uses language in a specific kind of way in the context of, of what we call prophecy. And right at the beginning, right from chapter 1 of his book, he gives Israel, through Moses, one of the keys to understand how he uses language. And he does this in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them, that's the lights, be for signs and for seasons and for days and years now he goes on to describe in verses 15 16 and 17 and 18 what those lights are that he's talking about the lights are the sun the moon and the stars but right there in verse 14 he tells his people why god created the sun the moon and the stars. He created them for three purposes, and we're only focused in our study today on one of those three purposes. But what's the very first purpose that he mentions? Because you know, the sun's pretty important to our experience in life. I'm talking about the physical sun in the sky. It's pretty important, right? Would there be any life on Earth without the sun? The answer is no. The moon is pretty important. It's not as important as the sun, but it's pretty important. It serves a very important function. Even the stars have importance. But the very first purpose that the Lord identifies is not a physical benefit. It's a spiritual benefit, and it's this. Let them, the sun, the moon, and the stars, let them be for signs. And he uses the same word that Joel later uses, that Peter later uses, and applies to a spiritual communication by God, Using prophetic language in a specific prophetic context that communicates spiritual principles using the physical changes of those lights in the sky. Now, what are the changes that Joel is focused on with the sun and the moon, the two great lights? The sun will be turned to what? To darkness and the moon will be turned to blood. Now, are we trying to interpret either of those phrases in a hyper-literal way? No, because if the sun were, be, were to actually, in a hyper-literal way, be turned to darkness, what would happen? Yeah, I mean, the, it would mean the sun would be extinguished and it would never shine again. If the, if the sun, the literal sun at the center of our solar system were to be literally turned to darkness, it would stop shining, it would stop burning as this giant uh, hydrogen ball in the heavens that both lights our planet and heats and warms our planet, and all life would cease on the planet. Is the Lord describing that he's going to extinguish the sun? No. No. But from the perspective of those that are observing the sun, in the events that the Lord is pointing to and describing, from their perspective, the sun will be darkened. So, have you ever had an experience where, from your perspective, other than nighttime, obviously at night the sun goes, you know, the earth turns and the sun is not visible during the night. And so, the sun, from that observation perspective, is temporarily for a few hours each night turned to darkness. But this is talking about what we would call daytime experience. When, when could that possibly happen? What we call solar eclipse. Now the moon turning to blood, are we going to argue for hyper-literalism there? I mean, you know, some people believe the moon is made out of cheese, but it certainly isn't made out of blood, right? The, the moon will never, has never, in the days of Joel, in the days of Peter, in our days, it has never... It will never literally be transformed from rock to blood. It's not going to be a giant ball of blood in the sky. What are we talking about? We're talking about from the observation of those in certain special moments in history that are connected to a day of the Lord level experience, the moon will appear to be blood red in the sky. This is what uh, Bible prophecy uh, teachers have come to call blood moons and even the, the surrounding culture is picked up on the blood moon kind of concept. Now, did any of that happen in any way connected to any events that are connected to the day of Pentecost experience and what Peter was declaring on that day as Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled? The answer is there was no solar eclipse on the day of Pentecost. And there was no blood moon on the day of Pentecost. What I'm going to be arguing and what I'm going to try to show us with clarity this morning is that Peter is referencing what we saw in our study last week that the day of Pentecost was a signal from the Lord. It's a signal of a a new time period that's starting and the the moment the Lord pushed a button in heaven, so to speak, to start this special time period, which Peter calls the last days. The beginning point of the last days is the day of Pentecost. But what's the culmination point of the last days? I offered two possible uh, interpretations in our study last week. And really there's only these two that make sense. One is the last days could be Peter jumping ahead from the day of Pentecost all the way to the end of history, a day that still in our future, he could be talking about the second coming of Christ. That in some way, the events of the day of Pentecost signal that we're just about to experience the second coming of Christ. I don't think that w- that's what Peter is referencing. And it would be difficult to stretch the day of Pentecost as a spiritual symbol of the start of a last days period that's going to last at least so far in history, 2,000 years, and somehow is signaling the people there that the second coming of Christ is in view here. The other option, the one that I was arguing for, the one that I believe fits more clearly and closely to the text, is that this is signaling the beginning of a final generation that would mean something to Peter, It would mean something to the people that Peter was speaking to. A final generation of Old Covenant history. Starting in 30 AD, when Peter is speaking these words on the day of Pentecost, ending in 70 AD, where the temple was finally destroyed and the Old Covenant was completely and finally abolished, leaving only the New Covenant with a 40-year transition time period in the Lord's graciousness between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, in that light, was there any solar eclipse, any blood moons connected to those events? Well, in the year 68 AD, there were two great Jerusalem-centered blood moons that did take place. Why is 68 AD important? It's the height of the jewish war that led to the final destruction of the city of jerusalem and the temple of god then in that same year 68 a.d there was a solar eclipse in two locations one in the city of rome which was the army that the lord used to bring about the destruction of the temple and the second solar eclipse happened of course directly over the city of jerusalem so i believe that the sun was darkened in the way that Peter is describing, but it was darkened as a pointer to the destruction that would be happening within that single generation. And the moon was turned to blood from their perspective, not literally, but from their perspective, there were these two great blood moons. Now, there are three other details that are listed in terms of the wonders in the heavens above. So heavens above, sun and moon signs on the earth below so these are not we're not looking now into the heavens for the fulfillment of these signs we're looking in events unfolding on the on the surface of the earth and three things peter and joel both mentioned that are connected to the fulfillment of the anticipation on signs on the earth beneath what are those three things blood fire and vapor of smoke well, I will just say this, uh, you know, at, when the Lord returns in the second coming, it wouldn't shock me if all three of those things were experienced in this world just prior to his second coming. But I can say with certainty in the events of 70 AD and the, and the reconquest of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and then the effect and the impact on the people, the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem that were living at that time, blood, Ran, And this is through the description, not just of scripture, but this is the first century historian Josephus. Blood ran in the streets of Jerusalem so deeply that it was like wading through a river. Blood filled the streets of the city of Jerusalem. Fire, was there any great fire in Jerusalem in the events of 70 AD? As the Roman legions made their way through the city in the final events of the con- the reconquest of the city they finally came to the temple where the last of the jewish rebels were holding up they uh overran the walls of the temple they killed the last of the rebels and then by order of the roman commander they set fire to the temple of god now the temple of god was a giant structure it was set on the most prominent hill in the city of jerusalem And as it was set on fire, the entire temple complex was burning. And as it was burning, the third of these three um, signs on the earth below was seen, which is a smoke, a vapor of smoke that rose from the temple that could be seen for miles around in every direction. It looked to the observers coming toward the city of Jerusalem like the entire city was on fire at the same time. Now, let's head back to Acts chapter 2 and we'll, we'll look at the last verse. Verse 20. I've said that these wonders in the heavens above, sun darkened, moon turned to blood, these signs on the earth beneath, which are blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, they're all connected and they're all pointing to a singular event. That singular event... In verse 20, Joel and Peter together describe as a whole that singular event being the day of the Lord. Looking in uh, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, what is the day of the Lord? We I read that Amos passage on purpose because it It identified for us that we might think that the day of the Lord is a good thing, something to look forward to, something to anticipate, a day of rescue, a day of of victory, a day of celebration. But as Amos described to the people of God, it's not what you think it is. It's not a day of light. It's not a day of of, uh, pleasance. It's a day of disaster and destruction. It's a day of darkness and gloom with no light in it. Now... Is that an exceptional use of that concept? Let's look at a single passage in Jeremiah chapter 46. Turn with me back there if you would. What we're looking for now is, I said earlier we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture when it comes to challenging prophetic descriptions. This is an example of doing that. What we're looking for is how do we rightly interpret the phrase, the key phrase, the day of the Lord. So I think what Joel and Peter are both doing, they're connecting three things together in a sense of a sequencing of events. First, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a new and greater way than it ever had been in history before. That certainly happened on the day of Pentecost. And in that outpouring of the Spirit, God pressed the button that started the last days. That last days period lasted exactly 40 years, and it led through a sequence of amazing events. There were amazing events that filled the entire 40-year period from 30 to 70 A.D. But right toward the end of that time period, there were wonders in the heavens above, and then signs on the earth below, And then the actual fulfillment of the day of the Lord was experienced by Jerusalem. And it was a day of great darkness and destruction, not a great day of celebration and a day they should have anticipated in that way. So what does the day of the Lord mean? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 46. And if you, if you'll notice just above the text in verse one in the ESV, and this is Sometimes translators, you know, aren't on point with, you know, summarizing the passage. In this case, they're right on point. It's an important summary for us to notice. You'll see in italics right above verse 1, three words in our ESV text. What are those three words? Judgment on Egypt. All right, let's read. I'm going to read kind of quickly, and I'm not going to develop every detail just for the sake of our time the word of the lord that came to jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about egypt concerning the army of pharaoh necho king of egypt which was by the river euphrates at Carchemish, which nebuchadnezzar king of babylon defeated in the fourth year of jehoiakim the son of josiah king of judah prepare buckler and shield advance for battle harness the horses mount a horseman Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the the north by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth. He's now quoting what the Pharaoh of Egypt was thinking. I'm taking over the whole world. I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the waters, the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. Then verse 10, that day is... The day of the Lord, God of hosts. A day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. The Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Now let's skip down to verse 13. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon to strike the land of Egypt the point of me reading this whole passage is this let's let scripture interpret scripture so the Lord through an inspired prophet by the name of Jeremiah prophesied about the day of the Lord but this was not the day of the Lord for the whole planet earth and this is a day of the Lord that already happened in history and was completely fulfilled. It's past and no longer applies, other than as an important history lesson and an important spiritual lesson about what God did in intervening in history. And what was the day of the Lord targeting in this specific version of the day of the Lord? This was the Lord announcing to the prophet Jeremiah the end of the empire known as egypt and he was ending the empire known as egypt by raising up in history another empire which was the babylonian empire to come and conquer them on the field of battle and once that battle was finished egypt would never be the same as a nation again now does egypt exist today yes have they ever been the same Have there ever been a world-dominating empire since that day? Never, and they never will be again until the end of history. Why? Because they've experienced the day of the Lord. Now, we don't have time to read the next one on, I think should be on our list here. And that is that uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 And also 17 to 19. I would encourage you to read that passage in your own time. I have read it before as part of other studies, but it would be important to read it. That is also identified by the prophet Isaiah, like the prophet Jeremiah, as a day of the Lord that is happening in history. And in that case, it's not the day of the Lord for Egypt. Interestingly, it's the day of the Lord for Babylon. So the Lord judged Egypt using Babylon. But in the Isaiah passage, in the Isaiah day of the Lord, the Lord uses the Medio Persian Empire, known as the Medes at that point in history in the Isaiah prophecy. He uses the Medes to judge the Babylonians, just like he had used the Babylonians to judge the Egyptians. And when that day of the Lord is experienced by Babylon, what happens to Babylon? They're no longer a world-dominating empire in the way that they were prior to them experiencing that day of the Lord. So just taking those two uses and allowing of this key phrase, day of the Lord, and allowing scripture to interpret scripture, when Joel later takes the day of the Lord terminology... And you'll see up in the overhead. I, I gave us a, a sequence of passages in Joel. I won't take the time to go and read each one of those. I would again encourage you to read them in your own time. So let me just read them for the sake of the uh, recording. Joel one fifteen, Joel two verse one, Joel two verse eleven, Joel two thirty one, which is the one we have been studying, and then Joel thir- uh, three verse fourteen. In every one of those cases, Joel uses the day of the Lord terminology. But in Jeremiah's case, it was a day of the Lord for Egypt. In Isaiah's case, it's the day of the Lord for Babylon. And in Joel's case, it's the day of the Lord for Israel. And he points forward in one of those passages to a future time when it's going to happen. And it's going to follow the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And then Peter quotes it and applies it to what's happening on the day of Pentecost. And Peter is essentially saying, this is now the signal that the Lord gave us through the prophet Joel so that we could know when it happened that a time frame has just started. And it's an exact 40-year window of time. And it is the last days of God's old covenant relationship with his people. And this nation that God has had this special relationship with is going to experience their own day of the Lord. And they certainly did in the events of 70 AD. And from that day forward, Israel was never the same, just like Babylon was never the same, just like Egypt was was never the same. Now, heading back to Acts chapter 2, you remember from our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we won't turn to Matthew, but you remember from our study in Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 24, that the Lord Jesus made a, uh, in, in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, we've just been studying that on Thursday night, but it really was the, a prophetic word that the Lord spoke to his disciples about a coming judgment upon Israel that was going to culminate as the Lord Jesus described it as a destruction of the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem so severe that not a single stone of the temple would be left connected to another stone. It was going to be completely devastated, completely demolished. And he uses this key phrase, Two times, once in Matthew 23 and once in Matthew 24, to give his disciples a clear understanding of the the framework in time in history of the fulfillment of these events. And he says, "These things are going to be fulfilled within the scope of this generation." Now, the only question to be resolved is: Is Peter thinking along those lines because he was there to hear Jesus make that emphasis when he says what he says on the day of Pentecost? When he's talking about the last days, when he's talking about the day of the Lord here in verse 20, or is he thinking about some far distant future event? Well, we're still in Acts chapter two and we're gonna just for a moment jump ahead to the end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Verse 38. He's finished his sermon and the crowd has now cried out to him and said, we're cut to the heart. What must we do? What kind of response is the Lord requiring of us? We believe what you've just declared. We're, we're devastated in our hearts now from what you have preached to us. What should we do? And Peter says in response in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls, Lord our God calls to himself. And then verse 40, and with many other words, meaning we have a summary here of how Peter exhorted the crowd, but we don't know all of the detailed exact words that he spoke. But here's the summary. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying what? Save yourselves, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What time frame is Peter thinking of? He's thinking of this generation. He's thinking that the, this event of the day of Pentecost has something critical to do with the, the start of a final generation of history of God's special covenant relationship with Israel and that's going to be changed and transformed in some new way into a new covenant relationship with God if they believe in his son and all that he's accomplished for them in a saving way but one way or the other that judgment is coming and it will be seen in the events that did unfold in Jerusalem in the events of 70 a.d. Now, where does that leave us? And uh, Caleb, if you could start getting the, the worship team ready, I think we'll have just enough time uh, to sing that last song. Where does that leave us in terms of application for us today? I've got three key words up there in the overhead. The words are learn, understand, and recognize. What is it we're to learn from? What, I mean, this, all, this complex and difficult and challenging study that we've done today. One, learn how to read prophetic language in its original context learn to allow scripture to interpret scripture don't leap to wanting to read into difficult passages what you want them to mean allow god to speak to your heart in terms of how he uses the special language that he does it will enhance all of your study of these prophetic books in scripture second understand this Understand that the years from 30 to 70 AD were a special period of time in history. It's the great turning point of history. It's the transition from one covenant relationship with God to a new covenant relationship with God. It's in that sense that the years 30 to 70 AD are the most important years in all of human history. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand how God is working in history. And then third, recognize for our own sake that there is one more day of the Lord yet to be experienced in history. There was a day of the Lord for Egypt and Egypt was never the same. There was a day of the Lord for Babylon and Babylon was never the same. There was a day of the Lord even for Israel and Israel has never been the same. But there is a day of the Lord coming as Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter three and we've studied that together as a church before a day of the lord that's coming for the entire world a day of gloom and darkness a day that immediately precedes the second coming of christ himself a day in which there will be a final judgment and a great reckoning for every single human being that has ever walked the face of this earth let's worship